Yeah, you sound like a huge bitch, so. I know. <laughs> Why are you the way that you are? <laughs> Doesn't fucking answer when I call her. <laughs> Thinks she's too cool for me. Awesome. I love that. Fucking bitch. Hey, call me back. Just kidding, I'm going back into work. So, text me, maybe. <laughs> and um, that's what I get when I don't answer your calls. <laughs> <laughs> When I'm working, <laughs> I'm like a crazy girlfriend. <laughs> I felt crazy when I was recording it because I felt like I went through like seven diff- different personalities in like 37 seconds. <laughs> hey guys, welcome to episode 85 of I'm Sorry What the Podcast. I'm Amanda. I'm Christina, and I know you were starting the podcast, but all of a sudden I was like, who came in the room? <laughs> put out i put on my radio voice you know <laughs> hey guys i'm like oh who came in, who came in the room <laughs> hello hello <laughs> i gotta adjust it took me a solid i have to do this now <laughs> yeah i have to adjust now <laughs> my blanket the, the, the blanket skirt yeah but the edge of it was right in my butt crack and oh. so it was like i had to make it so it was on the side <laughs> It's like I feel like I'm fucking riding a something. <laughs> <laughs> fucking no. What's up? How you doing? How's your oh. injuries and sicknesses? Plural. <laughs> what is it you called me? What did you tell me? My body was. You said it was a majestic. Oh, um, majestic oh, man. unicorn of like fucked upness. Oh, majestic like unicorn of injuries and sicknesses. Yeah, or something like that. What was it? Um, my headphones came out. I can't hear you. So if you're saying something, I don't know. Because <laughs> I moved and I punched it out. <laughs> I should have been like Amanda's a big bitch. <laughs> you say that when it's in, so I don't know why that would be different. That's what she said. Nice try. You say that when it's in. <laughs> yeah. Amanda's a big bitch. <laughs> well, that's the laugh we're going with today. Awesome. Woo. Good, because um, it's not a funny episode. <laughs> so my ankle, I know all of you are very concerned about my ankle. So <laughs> most recent update, he doesn't fucking know. They did an MRI and he's like, yeah, I don't know. He literally was like doing like an exam on my ankle and he just stopped and stared at it. And it was about a minute and a half of silence. And I finally went, you're going to have to cut me open or and he's like, I don't want to, but I don't know what else to do. And I was like, oh, <laughs> he was like visibly frustrated. So he was like, I'm going to take your case and your MRIs, if you're okay with that, to a medical conference that I'm having to do or I'm going to this weekend via Zoom uh, and see if anyone else can tell me what the hell to do with your ankle. <laughs> So I'm a fucking freak. Well, and like you said, it's kind of like that Friends episode. <laughs> right? <laughs> when he's got that, like, goiter or whatever on his back, and it's, like, <laughs> it's on his ass, and it's, like, one doctor after the other. Can you hear that? It's the giant's toilet. I can't hear it, so oh, I think can't. Good. I think we're good. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> um, what about you? What's wrong with you? Nothing. Nothing? I'm good. I mean, like, I had a sciatica pain for a while, but it's fine. It went away, kind of. <laughs> I'm fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's not worth talking about. So I'll stop. <laughs> so why are we talking about it? Because it's the only thing going on in my life. I sit at home and I do my work. And then I sit at home and I don't do my work. And that's all I do. Sometimes I sit at home 
and I think about my work. <laughs> That's that too. Uh, so okay, oh, okay, Kevin. All right. So today we're doing something different. Oh, right? we we are doing something different today. We teamwork, teamwork, teamwork. Actually, what happened was it's the first time ever in eighty-five episodes we picked the same fucking person. Yep, and. <laughs> just so happens there the case had more than one aspect to it it's a tale of two brothers (laughs) well so i text christina and i go hey do you know this person and she goes no wait yes i do i just finished the research for that and i was like i i said (laughs) no because it's like the the actual case is known by a different it's not known by his name it's known by where they happened yeah, and so I I was like, no, and then I'm like, wait, that sounds really familiar. So then I googled it. I'm like, just kidding. It's literally the case I just got done researching. <laughs> uh huh. And then she goes, yeah, because I saw this, and this was his brother, and I was just like, that's funny because I watched this about this same guy, and well, then he talked brother. about their brother, and then, <laughs> so she's like, why don't you just do the other brother? And I was like. Okay, so we did a little team effort thing. Teamwork makes the dream work. Um, I just jerked off into the air a little bit. Gross. Um, gross. So because of this, Amanda's going to go first this time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. <clears throat> mine is kind of like a two-part two on top of it. So, well, I'm going to do Steven Stainer and... Then next week, I'm going to kind of deep dive into his, the the bad guy. The bad guy of her story. Yes. Story, not my story. Of my story. Christina's bad guy is her story. Yeah. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> All I'm right. Bad guy. Should we jump in? Duh. Starts. Like, okay. Billie Eilish, relax. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wearing like a Billie Eilish sweatshirt right now. It's huge and I <laughs> love it. I know. I know why she dresses like that. It's comfy as fuck. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. So Stephen Stainer was born on April 18th of 1965 in Merced, California mm-hmm. to Delbert, but he goes by Del. Delbert. That's yes. a, that's a name. And Kay Stainer. Um, Merced has, is the, is nicknamed the gateway to Yosemite. Du-du-du. I just gotta say while I was doing this though Christina every time his uh brother's name popped up I was like (laughs) (laughs) because he was the third of five children Carrie Cynthia Jody and Cody and he was the middle um the family were practicing Mormons and attended church a couple times a week so they were pretty devout and regularly active Um, they camped at a nearby lake at least once a month. And from what I could see, uh, Steven seemed to be the actual outdoorsy one. He was the one that really liked to do that. He had his dog that he was real attached with and they just go for walks and spend time outside on their own. Not just like then he'd go like fishing with his dad and stuff. And even though, even though they would give him grief about him, uh, not being quiet enough to catch anything because he would always like want to talk while they were outside (laughs) and then the fish would swim away. So, um, so in 1971, the family's clop clop 
crop had run dry on this ranch that they had. And so they decided to sell it and move into town. Um, this was really tough for Steven because he really enjoyed the space and the privacy. Uh, he switched schools in by September of 1972 and he was making friends and getting used to town life, like walking back and forth from school and, you know, mm-hmm. He was just, it was, he was getting used to it, but he was not happy about it at first. Not happy about it. I'm not happy. <laughs> um, on December of 1972, Stephen Stainer went to a birthday party and um, for his good friend, uh, Sharon. Uh, the party was, oh, he got her a little stuffed animal. It was I, just little, these little notes are the reason why I got like all heavy in depth because it was like just random things to spread mm-hmm. to make it very, how like normal life was, you know, that night he told his mom and dad that the party was so much fun. And he was super excited for Christmas and all of the party and people that he was going to be seeing oh, to be young. Oh. That's what I wrote. Oh, how old was he? Seven. Seven. Okay. So he was just excited for everything. And yeah. I think it was his first like real birthday party there since they had moved. And so it was right. like, ah, it was so fun. And I'm just excited for people. So on the morning of December 4th, the older kids um, had breakfast and Kay, the mom, obviously, did her rounds to make sure that like the older kids had all of their things, that they weren't like messy in their face. They were all dressed like you know, did the whole like check before school thing. Yeah. The youngest one, Corey still stayed home with her, mm-hmm. um, because he was a preschool, preschool kid. So they were good to go. And she sent them off to w- walk the 12 blocks all together to Charles Wright elementary. So they usually did this because at this time, um, Carrie was 10 or 11 and so he would walk with the younger kids to school mm-hmm. um and then after school the younger kids would walk with groups of friends home yep so it, it was kind of like just their routine they did it every day it's so weird because this is literally like my middle school life because my I mom know. well my mom did daycare so like the parents would actually in the morning a lot of them that were school age or whatever they would drop their kids off at our house because we were three blocks from school and we would Mm -hmm. all walk to school together and then we'd all come back home after our various athletic stuff we'd all trickle back into the house Mm -hmm. until their parents were back ready to pick them up at the end of the day and so like we would always walk together in groups and some of us would walk together home and sometimes we'd walk with our friends home and like Mm -hmm. that's just well and it's just how it was up until yeah, I mean, even now, I'm sure there's still kids that walk back and forth from oh, yeah. school, which I don't see the problem with as long as they're like safe and as long as they understand, know, as long as they know that they can tell adults to fuck off, right? Stranger danger, off. not just stranger danger. People <clears throat> you know, danger. If they're if they know you, and that's they're still true. trying to get you in the car, or they're asking you for help, that's creepy. An adult should Please never be your child listening to this. Episode. Right. An adult should never be asking a child to help them with yes. something. I told and, my sister to tell Alex that. Mm-hmm. I'm like, never ever help an adult that you don't know or mm-hmm. that you do know if it seems weird. Right. If your parents aren't there. Yeah. To be like, oh yeah, that's fine. Like, nope, nope, don't do it. Mm-hmm. I forgot it wasn't a visual podcaster for a second. I just shook my head a lot. Yep. All right. So Carrie, who was a sixth grader, would lead the way. 
Stephen finished school at 2 p.m., which was earlier than the rest of the kids. I don't know if maybe it's just how it was for his like first grade class or whatever, second grade mm-hmm. class, but he finished at 2 p.m. And he usually would just walk that half mile or 12 blocks or whatever with a few of his friends from class. So Kay, it was raining and kind of gross that day. So Kay decided to come pick him up after she finished errands because she was running errands all day. And when she got to the school at 2.10, only 10 minutes later, Stephen wasn't at the school. So she drove the route, route that he usually took to walk home to find him and pick him up. Um, let me go down. Whoop, too much. Oh, okay. There was no... <laughs> I couldn't let it go. Uh, There was no sign of him on her way home. And so by 2.20, when she got home, he hadn't gotten back either. So she's like, okay, 20 minutes. Maybe he just stayed at the school. He had something going on right after school. And he's waiting for the bigger kids to get done with school at three now to walk home. You know, didn't, she didn't immediately panic. She was kind of like, he's probably just at the school waiting for the older kids now. And I just couldn't find him because he was doing something in the library or something, you know? Mm -hmm. So at 3 PM, Kay and Del went to get Jody and Cynthia from school because Carrie was walking home with his friends like usual. Um, They went and Steven wasn't there and nobody had seen him since lunch hour, like of his siblings. Oh no. So this is when they kind of weren't like, they weren't like terribly concerned, but they were still, cause he had just actually gotten into trouble for um, going over to a friend's house without asking permission and they couldn't find him for a while. And then oh. he got in trouble. And so they didn't like immediately panic. They figured that just happened again and they needed to go home and like call the friends and figure out who, <laughs> whose house he went to. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so when they got home, that's what they did. They called their friends, uh, And Sharon, the one with the birthday party from the night before, said that they were walking next to each other on the way home, and they parted ways where they usually did at the end of each other's blocks, because it's like they would be walking and then they'd split. Mm -hmm. So there's only like two more blocks for um, each of them to walk. So she said that they were walking together, and then they parted ways, and it was right at the Yosemite Parkway. So it's like cut off by the entrance of the Yosemite Park okay Mm -hmm. so um usually he'd walk the rest of the way with a boy um another boy one of his other friends but that boy's mother had picked him up to go shoe shopping that day so he wasn't there so Stephen just just, yeah Stephen just walked himself home which it was a couple blocks so it wasn't a huge deal but um with that being fruitless like calling all the friends and not finding him they drove around town again checking any of the other friends houses or any friends that were outside playing asking if they had seen him and asking like passerbys if they've seen a boy in you know cowboy boots and all the things he was wearing that day once five o'clock rolled around and they still hadn't been able to figure out where he was or who he was with they called the police and reported him missing um the police came and they took a statement from steven about steven's appearance that he's four eights about 60 pounds had shaggy light brown hair brown eyes was wearing like blue jeans a tan coat and cowboy boots i so when i wrote that down i also wrote asterisks kind of sounds like bill (laughs) a tan jacket cowboy boots jeans (laughs) nice uh so Uh, The police officers weren't 
super concerned either. Again, small town, things never really happened there. And they just Mm -hmm. figured he had gone to maybe a new friend's house and it was something that, you know, he'd just, he'd turn up eventually, whether it be somebody calling or to say he's here or something like that. That's kind of where they looked, how they looked at it at first. The police officer then traced all of the routes that he could could have taken. So the police like did their rounds around the neighborhood to figure out where he is, focusing on the Yosemite Parkway because they thought maybe he would have gone in to the park and okay. played or done something like that. So they were trying to focus there since that was the very last place someone had seen him. An employee from a gas station said that Stephen walked east towards his house and that's the other like sighting of him so he walked past a gas station that he walks past every day when he goes to home goes home Mm -hmm. so it was like okay at six um so an hour after the police were called more police officers and members of the local boy scouts came out to try to search in the rain they because remember it's raining and cold and just gross um there was an announcement on the local radio station that this like to keep an eye out basically uh, Del and Kay got a babysitter for their other kids, like left them with family and went to like junkyards and um, abandoned areas and everything and tried to like comb them as well as they could to try to help with the search. Maybe it was something fun for a seven-year-old boy, you know, mm-hmm. um, but <clears throat> a little after midnight, Del was asked to come to the police station and uh, the chief straight up asked him if he had killed Steven, like straight Jesus. up was just like, I, hate when they, I know they have to question the parents, but right. It's just like, did you, did you do something, Steven? Did you kill Steven? Um, and of course, Dell got like super mad and he's like, give me a polygraph right now. I, I have nothing to hide. I'm just trying to find my kid. Like I, whatever. Go fuck yourself. Well, and of course they didn't like have a polygraph in the station because it's a small town station. So they had to like get one from a different mm-hmm. uh, police district. So uh, December 5th, the police came to the Stainer's house and put a tap on their phone in case there was any like ransom calls that came in. Um, The FBI also offered up their labs, but technically they couldn't like participate in the search for Stephen yet because it hadn't been proven that he crossed any state lines or that he hadn't Mm -hmm. done any, you know, so they offered up their labs for They can come in if they're called in. Exactly. But they hadn't been asked to come in yet. They were just like, hey, you can come use our labs if you need to for whatever reason. But there really wasn't any sort of like, there were no clues as to what happened to him. Um, the media and surrounding county bulletins put out um, statements on the disappearance. It was like a statewide alert because I think this was technically before Amber Alert was a thing. Um, it's early 70s. I think Amber Alerts, I want to say it started in like late 70s-ish. I don't know for sure. But they did like a statewide alarm bulletin. Um, the search continued with... With the help of the Mormon Church and other community organizations, everybody dragged the they dragged the rivers and the lakes, and um, the only thing they found when they did that was a tire. So, uh, the Amber police, Alert began in 1996. Yeah, I was like, it's definitely not an old thing. Yeah. Um. So and like the family, so what they did was they made these like missing person flyers and then they faxed them to like school districts and stuff throughout the state 
Okay. Um, so that's, I thought that was kind of interesting. Like the family did that. <laughs> right. So, um, the police's theory really early on in the investigation is that maybe the parents had debt or something and they had, this is the reason why they were kind of like, uh, maybe the parents did it, had debt and they had maybe sold their son to cover Jesus. it into some sort of a trafficking type thing. Cause that's been happening forever. People like trafficking is not new. It's just being, people are more aware of it. Hashtag protect our children. Exactly. Read about um, MK ultra. If you don't believe us. Right. MK ultra, um, the Franklin cover up. There's a thing in UK. Epstein, Operation paperclip. Any of them. The Jimmy U- Seville. But then you also have to be careful not to dive into the, um, what is it the satanic panic stuff where people just made things up and yeah because nobody was, was flushed down toilets just yeah so just i mean if you had to be told that we're telling you that <laughs> so once they got a hold of a polygraph they tested both the parents and they passed obviously and on the following friday december 8th the community did a huge scale search like as many people as possible and they went they were very in-depth and detailed about it. And they, the police also pretty much said that that was going to be the last like major search they were going to participate in until more leads or something came up for them to know what to do. Cause they've already used how many like man hours on it, you know? Right. Um, and since they didn't have any clue as to where to look, they were literally just searching the town and around it, you know? Right. Um, so it was kind of like a, oh, let's find something. But that didn't really come up with anything either, which is, ugh. So anyway, remember that it's been rainy and cold, below freezing, like below 32 degrees Fahrenheit. So they were worried that maybe he had been playing outside and got caught in the elements somewhere, like in the forest. Um, The police surrounding, so the police searched the surrounding area and Dell said that he basically searched day and night throughout the entire time that they were doing active searches um, through all the abandoned areas possible. And this is when the statewide bulletin for the police officially considered this foul play, not including the parents. They were like, something happened to him outside of the parents because he would have turned up by now. Like his um, later on in an interview with his mom, she's just like, in my mind, he has to be alive because a body would have shown up by now. Right. Like, he couldn't have gone too far. And, you know, so she's just like, that's how they kept their, like, hopes high. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, and this is, oh, no, they created a list of local known sex offenders, um, which none of them had a clear link to him so they didn't really they couldn't do much with that information but i feel like if you're a local sex offender whether you have a link to the child or not being a sex offender should automatically make you have to (laughs) come in for questioning well they did they went and they questioned all of them they made their list and they looked at them the most probable people locale wise and stuff and like they questioned people but there was no there was no real link for them to do more than just question them to any mm-hmm. of the people that were on that list. So um, they were also running a theory that Stephen may have been taken into Yosemite Park. So they searched that with no outcome of anything. But I they just they were kind of just like 
doing throwing whatever they could against the wall and seeing what stuck at that point because everybody's panicking you know it's been now days or whatever mm-hmm. so they got a list of employees from Yosemite all of the people that worked you know cleaning um maintenance all yeah. that fun stuff um so they complied but the ranger wasn't too happy about posting missing child posters in the park because he was afraid that it would deter tourists from coming in oh yeah that's that's a reason yep Mm -hmm. drive me crazy and then you wonder why there's so many missing 411 things that aren't on record Mm -hmm. anyway (laughs) we could go on so many tangents in this fucking story uh a week had gone past now, and there was no sign of Stephen. Um, absolutely no sign of him. The official search had been called off. Dell was being um, was kind of being the face of the family when they were doing interviews and stuff. Mm-hmm. And he had said that Kay was handling things much better than him, putting on her brave face and reassuring the kids that Stephen was safe and would be coming home sometime. And then he said. But he said also, quote, but late at night after we've said our prayers, I do hear her cry. Oh. So she was trying really hard to be as strong as possible for the kids, but it's just, it's such a situation. I couldn't even imagine. Mm -mm. So Christmas, because this was December 4th when he disappeared, Christmas passed with no word and neighbors cheered the, tried to cheer the children up by uh, giving gifts to them and people came over in like Santa costumes and elf costumes and stuff and tried to mm-hmm. just be like positive. Yeah. Uh, Steven's presents were left under the tree and his parents said they would stay there until he came home. Um, the Stainers were sure that they, that he had been kidnapped. They think that he was taken, that he wasn't dead. Some He's somewhere basically mm-hmm. is their thought. Psychics were uh, were coming out of the woodwork, of course, um, saying things like he's in a trunk or he's been buried under some leaves or which I'm not like necessarily saying that psychic abilities are completely false and they don't happen. But I feel like there's too many psychics that use. There's too many con men. Yeah, too many. Exactly. Not psychics, but con men that use that as a reason to try to get money and stuff out of people's so. parents grief to get money. Exactly. So the local news offered up a hundred thousand, a hundred thousand, was it a hundred thousand? Maybe a hundred thousand dollars in late December. I thought it was only like a thousand. That's why I'm like, maybe I wrote that right. Maybe I didn't. I don't know. It might be a thousand. The next clue, uh, if you would consider it a clue, the next clue, if you would consider it a clue was in early 1973, they found a, a child's, uh, cowboy boot like steven was wearing the day that he just disappeared in bear creek um it ended up being not being his so it was just a happenstance similar thing um the stainers went national and they pleaded to all of the as many news like outlets as they could but basically the spotlight had passed and no channels were interested in well, it's kind of hard to keep them interested in a story where there's no new information and no information right. updated. But the problem is, is that it was a statewide thing. So when they went national and they didn't want to, they were trying to go national because they didn't know if somebody picked him up that was a tourist through the Yosemite Park and disappeared into another state. Right. But because it had passed, the other states weren't interested in doing it, even though they hadn't really run the story at all. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but you know, it is what it is. So again, all about money. Mm -hmm. So May 15th of 1973, Dell and K offered up a $5,000 reward themselves, which was raised by the community and the local Elks club for them to do. Um, but there was still no sign and no word. Uh, it's, I just can't imagine. I just wrote heartbreaking on my next mm-hmm. line. Cause I'm like, I can't imagine being those parents that are just, there's nothing. Yeah. Um, and the, un- the not knowing has to be the hardest. I know. I mean, losing a child, like car accident, die by cancer, whatever is gotta be like soul wrecking, but to have your child just disappear and, and to not know, know, are they okay? do are they alive do they need help and I can't do anything for them what's happening to not knowing what's happening to them that just it gives me chills right I just even you just saying that I was like oh it hurts my stomach yeah um so (laughs) so another little like tidbit that I found that wasn't necessary but I thought it was very like eye-opening is one of Steven's friends from school wished out loud when he blew his candles out for his birthday for Steven to come home and I just I'm like poor kids like how how are they like dealing with that too like well and I can think his siblings were like thanks for coming Santa I asked for my brother to be home but thanks for my blocks right that's I'm just I can't even imagine. So the case was still active. Um, There were tips and things coming in and the police were actively looking. Uh, They were searching around for parallels with other missing children throughout the state. They were trying to, they were trying to do what they could with what they had. They didn't have anything. So it was really hard to go any further than what they did. Um, One year after the distance or distance. One year after the distance. I can go the distance. Okay, so one year after the disappearance, <laughs> there we go, uh, Kay told the, told the paper that she knows that one day they will be a family again, and then told them that her heart, them a heartbreaking story about Corey, the youngest of the kids, say, asking if Stevie was going to go to bed, and Kay just answered him, yes, somewhere he's going to be going to bed too. And she also had said in another interview that her family would never relocate just in case Steven came home. Oh, so they just stayed in that house until forever, you know? And I just, I can't imagine the little brother like, so is Stevie going to bed too? Yep. Somewhere he's going to bed somewhere. And it's like, Oh, police were still working on it. Um, I'm assuming they were assuming that he had either been taken or killed at this point, um, that he was probably no longer in the Merced area. Two years after the two year anniversary of the disappearance, Kay said that her belief that Stephen was still alive was stronger than ever, that she believed that if he wasn't alive, they would have found a body by now. That's when she said that three years after the disappearance, the police were called to a mental health facility about 150 miles away from Merced in Bakersfield, uh, a patient named Tom Wilson wanted to confess to participating in Stephen's kidnapping. He said that he had recently hitched a ride from Stephen's grandfather and felt compelled to confess. Um, this was looked into, but had it held no water and brought nothing. It was just a false confession. Mm-hmm. It was just a crazy person being crazy. 
Yeah, it's just a guy that maybe saw something that like sparked his brain to think that maybe that happened because he may have actually thought that he did. Mm-hmm. Um, just a crazy person being crazy. Yep. So Dell was now having a hard time. This whole like confession kind of sparked a little bit of a break in in Dell. Um, so at the false confession that is. So he believed that someone in the community knew more than what they were saying. He thought that there had to be more information out there that people were just not sharing, right? And one time Dell had pulled up next to a man in his car and the man was standing near this like dirt pile and he goes, and we just like connected eyes and then the man just walked away and he became like convinced that Stephen was in that dirt pile. And so he like called the police and tried to convince them to dig it up, but there was no evidence and it was private property. There was no, mm-hmm. they're kind of like Dell. Like, and there were a few things like that where he would see something and he'd get really stuck on that idea. Yeah. And I think it's just, you know, it's just a lot of, pre- it's a lot of stress to like, your poor kid's gone. Like, you want to cling to anything you can. I get it. Right. But. Yeah. So he was having a really hard time, a little bit of a mental break, like I said. Um, And on Thursday, February 14th of 1980, Timothy White finished kindergarten at about 1130 a.m. And this was about 237 miles north of Merced. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, He finished kindergarten at 1130 and he uh, he had received and made Valentine's Day cards that morning because it was February 14th. And he put them all in his lunchbox. Every day, Timmy would walk to his babysitter's house three blocks away, which is when you were saying your thing. Mm-hmm. I was like, hey. Yeah. Um, so he would walk three blocks away, uh, five years old. And he would always start with a friend. And then they would part being like, they said they were like three minutes away from the house or like a minute away from the house. It was barely even a block that they would part ways. Right. I was saying, you were saying he's five years old and I'm like, I walked to school when I was five. Mm -hmm. Like my parents walked me the first week. Oh yeah. You know, to make sure I knew the way. And then it was, don't walk any other way. Just. Mm -hmm. No. And that's like I said, it's not, it's not unusual. So it's Mm -hmm. like, uh, the babysitter, Diane, and the other kids would always go and stand on the porch and wait for Timmy to get home. Mm-hmm. So they went out to the porch, and when there was no sign of, sign of him, having a bit of a panic, not knowing what to do, Diane called Timmy's mom and said, at 1230 because he hadn't shown up for an hour. Because um, sometimes you get held up by friends, by whatever, um, and told her that Timmy never made it to the house. Angela, Timmy's mom, instantly called the police who came right away and drove the three blocks that the boy would have been walking. Um, As in, it's pretty much the same thing as Stephen's case, where at first the police just figured he had wandered off or was playing with a friend someplace, whether it be at the school or at a park or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, But by three, they were like extremely concerned. They were like, okay, five-year-old kid hasn't shown up. It's been a few hours we got a, we got a, something's on our, something's weird. Okay. Yeah. So this it's is when, do it. sorry, this is how we do it. I don't know why I have like a music thing going on in my head, but every time you say something weird like that, na, 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 na. <laughs> <laughs> you said this is in pause and I was like, this is how we do it. <laughs> <laughs> so 
this is when they did all the all hands on deck type of thing. Everybody basically showed up to try to find this kid Um, because the town was a super small town too. It was like everybody showed up. Right. Two days after after this, they brought tracking dogs into the town and they walked the usual route, but it also had been rainy that day, so there wasn't much to track for those mm-hmm. dogs, but they tried. Um, there was genuinely nothing, just like Stephen's case. It's like he just was plucked off the road and no one knows. Aliens. Aliens. That's see, and that's my four one one, like we were talking about a second ago. <laughs> I think a lot of it is aliens. How else does a four-year-old end up on a cliff 200 miles away in three hours? Like, that sort of thing. (laughs) Aliens. Aliens. Fucking aliens. Okay. Uh, Two weeks into Timmy's disappearance, there hadn't been a sign of him. Uh, Then, on Saturday, March 1st, 1980, just after 11 p.m., Officer Bob Warner was on duty at the police station and he spotted a crying boy outside the window who quickly walked away. And so Warner, of course, like ran outside. That's creepy. Right. He like ran outside and he saw the young boy running up to an older boy at the end of the block. Um, He then called up for backup so that when he approached, they wouldn't flee. He wanted to have another person there to see these Mm -hmm. people. Um, And Russell, Van Wars, I think is how you say his name. Van Vures, uh, got the, got to the station and he pulled up next to the boys and asked their names. The younger boy said Timmy White, and the officer hold on, burp, 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 and the officer had him repeat because he was so like, sorry, what? Yeah, like okay, hold on, you're Timmy White, Timmy White. So he had him repeat. He's like, hey, could you repeat that? And that's when the older boys like spoke up and said, my name's Steven. Uh, my name's Steven. And I've been missing from Merced for seven years. I just got, chills. can you imagine mm-hmm. that feeling? Like, cause the police officer remember that it was a thing, but it had been seven years. So, I mean, it could be a police police officer who started mm-hmm. since then. I don't know. It's just wild. Okay. So <laughs> this is when it gets exciting. <laughs> strap in (laughs) so um they called angela timmy's mom and said that there was a boy at the police station claiming that he was her son and so she rushed in um when she saw the boy she said she could barely recognize him he was extremely dirty um with soot and dust and dirt and his hair was now brown and she fainted like just overwhelmed she fainted when she woke up she realized it was him. His hair had just been dyed and he clearly hadn't been bathed in weeks. Because oh. he's been gone for like three weeks now-ish. Mm-hmm. No, it was, yeah, yep, about two and a half weeks. Mother and son literally hugged for 20 minutes quietly. Like, oh. just sat there and hugged each other. And then Timmy, the first thing he asked was how his sister and his cat was. Oh, <laughs> horrible. How's my sister and my cat? <laughs> it's so cute. I was like, oh, it's just so pure. I know. (laughs) How's my sister and my cat? So they had the older boy in like for questioning. They were asking him like, okay, hey, are you actually this person? Where the fuck have you been? Right. So 
they brought the older boy into questioning um, and the police officer told Timmy that he had, uh, oh, he told the police officer that Timmy had been kidnapped by the same man he was kidnapped by seven years ago. Um, he said that he wanted to make sure that the poor innocent kid didn't have to go through the nightmare that he had gone through. Oh, and he heart. planned to bring him home a week and a half earlier, but the storms didn't allow it when it was raining for those like days that he first got kidnapped. Yeah. Um, cause I guess they like attempted and Timmy got scared. Okay. And so Steven just brought him back so he wouldn't panic. Mm-hmm. Um, cause Steven's like, I would have brought him like the whole way that day, but he didn't want to go. He was really scared. So we went back. Um, at first he didn't want to say who had kidnapped him. Cause he had basically been brainwashed, like right. to not think that it was his dad. So we'll get into the story to understand where that came from but um this person that had kidnapped him he referred to as dad at first um but eventually he broke down and he said the man's name was kenneth parnell which is who i'm going to deep dive into next week um who worked at the palace hotel inn in ukiah just less than a half a mile away from the police station he was right away he was very insistent that parnell had not sexually abused either of them um but that is not necessarily the case. But I think that, I think that Stephen was embarrassed. Oh. So the Ukiah police called the Merced police to confirm that they had that missing child. Yep. Um, they then called Kay and Dell and said that they had news about their son and they were going to come over to talk to them. Okay. Because they didn't want to mm-hmm. stay it over the phone. They wanted to do it in person. Um, that night, Carrie the oldest brother was camping in Yosemite with some friends. Um, so they thought maybe the son that the police were talking about was Carrie and something happened at Yosemite park. Oh God. So they were like, uh, okay. Um, so they got there and they told him that Steven had been found and he was alive and Dell just like, broke down just sat down and wept and he's like I didn't hear anything after that I just knew he was alive and Mm -hmm. um I just (sighs) get a little get a little misty over here (laughs) um they couldn't see Steven immediately because they had to you know is that you that was the dogs dude it sounded like it was in here (laughs) (laughs) I was like what just happened (laughs) So they couldn't see Steven immediately because they had to figure out like where Parnell was, get a hold of him before, make sure he was safe. Like mm-hmm. Steven was safe to go home before all that. So yeah. um, the family stayed up all night waiting for it. Cause they were so excited. Mm-hmm. Um, the next morning the kids couldn't contain their excitement and they started telling the neighbors that they found their brother and they were just like jazzed about it. Right. The Ukiah police had Steven write a statement Um, about his life for the last seven years with Parnell. It was minimal. It didn't say very much. He just wrote, my name is Steven Stainer, which he spelt wrong because he was seven. Yeah. Yeah. I am 14 years of age. I don't know my true birth date, but I, (laughs) but I used April 18th, 1965. I know my name is Steven. I'm pretty sure my last name is Stainer. And if I have a middle name, I don't know it. Oh. Um, so here's what happened to Steven. 
It took a few interviews and statements for him to be forthcoming and honest about things. Uh, he was very like, oh, we had a normal life. We had a normal life. Like even. Wait, pause. It's going to get dark, right? It's not going to get terribly dark. It's okay. not as, I mean, cause he doesn't go into detail about the like abuse abuse. He never okay. has gone into huge detail. He. I just didn't want you to have all of a sudden drop a bomb or something. And right. <laughs> no. Cause he, um, I mean, there's moments, but it's not. Okay it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. It was more like just the heartbreaking search when I was talking to you. And I was like, there's just so much to this. Like, I can't imagine. Okay, here we go. On the afternoon of December 4th, 1972, Stephen was approached by two men, one being Parnell and the other being Irvin Edward Murphy. Uh, They were handing out religious pamphlets and asked if Stephen's mother would like to make a donation to the church. And then they offered him a ride home so that he could ask her. Side note, Murphy later said that Parnell had talked him into taking a boy to raise him up in a religious type deal, as Parnell said, when that he was like an aspiring minister. Okay. So Parnell wanted to be a minister, according to what Murphy was saying, his like Mm -hmm. partner in crime in this part, because they barely talk about him after this. Um, And so he wanted to get a boy to raise raise up as religious as possible okay and from everything that i read you it sounds like just get a boy that's yeah <laughs> well and from what i read murphy is had a really low iq he was very like impressionable oh. um so i think parnell kind of scoped him out to be his other body to try to mm-hmm. do this um so Stephen said, oh, sure. Like, yeah, I bet you my mom would like to donate to the Mormon church, you know, whatever. And hopped into the car, not thinking anything of it. Uh, The men drove him up the street uh, saying that they were just going to go to their place quick um, and drop some things off. And then they'll call his mom when they get there so that she knows where they are. Right? No. Yeah. No, I know. And it's, if you think about it as like a seven-year-old, you're like, I mean, I could see where you're like, okay, the adults are saying, mm-hmm. like, we're going to just call mom when you get there. Okay, cool. It's not like they're saying we're taking you. Um, Steven said they seemed really nice and he didn't think really, didn't think much of it. He even said that he remembers sitting back and enjoying the car ride because it was a nice like view because they went like partially out of town and he hadn't mm-hmm. been in that area before. Um, Parnell stopped at some point at a payphone, just a little bit out of town. And he said that he called Steven's mother and that he was going to stay at Parnell's for the night and they were okay with that. And so Steven's like, okay, if mom says it's fine, I guess, whatever. Um, they went back to the trailer, the trailer park in Yosemite where Parnell rented. Um, I guess Steven's grandpa only lived about 200 feet away from this. (gasps) How sad is that? Um, so Parnell had some kids stuff at the, already at the trailer. So he was planning to do this for a mm-hmm. bit. Um, and so Steven was playing with that and the man started asking, like the men started asking questions about his family and what he liked to do and kind of just like get to know you questions. Grosses me out. Mm-hmm. Um, and that first night Parnell did molest Steven, um, Again, it took a long time for Steven to like come out and actually say any of these things. And that's about as detailed as any of the abuse stuff gets. So don't, it's not, 
gritty, um, which I think is good and bad at the same time. But if that's what Steven's comfortable with people knowing, I think it's a good thing that that's the mm. only thing that's out. Uh, Parnell had, oh, I already did that. Parnell worked at the Yosemite Lodge and they actually moved into the private, into a private room where the employees were lodging the very next day after that. So he was one of the ones that they got the information for, but because he moved mid whatever, I don't know if maybe they missed where he was before or went to where he was and didn't go to his new place. And he was able to somehow finagle that, but they didn't, they didn't didn't have any reason. Yeah. They didn't have any reason to get deeper into that was a terrible Uh, choice of words. Um, It's not that kind of a podcast, Amanda. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So Parnell would give Steven sleeping pills when he would go to work so that he wouldn't try to escape when he was first there and a bucket for a toilet, um, at least for the first few days. Uh, The other man, Steven said the other man would stop in. So Murphy would come in and give him some toys and food and like entertain him. Basically, he said that he really liked this guy. He was really Mm -hmm. sweet and kind. So I think Murphy just what honestly didn't understand yeah he just honestly didn't understand what was happening um so on december 10th parnell brought steven back to that trailer for whatever reason i don't know why they moved out maybe he was just like a part-time here Mm -hmm. and there thing brought him back to the trailer at kathy's valley and in mid-december he bought him a puppy so parnell bought steven a puppy the dog's name was queenie um he did this to ease the news of telling him that his parents couldn't afford him anymore. And a judge said that Parnell could keep him and raise him. Oh God. So this is what Parnell told Steven. So Steven's just like, um, okay. So this is why he never, he knew that something was wrong. Cause I think just in your heart, you know, something's wrong when it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, didn't realize like how big of a deal it was, you know? Yeah. Uh, so Steven, Steven cried, obviously he was upset cause he didn't want to leave his family. Um, and he pleaded to Parnell that his family needed him. And Parnell just told him they don't need you right now. Aww. Yeah. <laughs> so right after that, Parnell dyed Steven's hair brown and cut it because he had blonde like dirty blonde hair that was like kind of shaggy and then he chopped it into a different style and dyed it brown so so you know that's not fishy at all Mm -hmm. um december 17th parnell quit his job and traded his car for a different one and drove the boy and the dog 200 miles to santa rosa uh they went like motel hopping for a living for a long while and this is when Parnell began actually raping Stephen. Um, mm-hmm. And this, from what I gathered, it happened on a pretty regular basis. But again, they didn't get into details on things. Um, but from this, just from how it's mentioned, mm-hmm. it seemed it was kind of a regular life thing. Um, and then on January 2nd of 1973, he enrolled Stephen into an elementary school. That's um, yeah, into Lane Elementary School under the name Dennis Parnell. So he straight up made him so he had a different alias. Yeah. He was his son now. Quotations type of thing. Gross. Um, 
uh, claiming that he was the father, he had been divorced and he didn't, and he did actually list his previous school as a previous school, but nobody contacted that school to get records or anything. So they had no idea that he wasn't actually a student there. And uh, Ballsy. Also, yeah. And they also didn't, didn't get a uh, copy of the birth certificate like they're supposed to uh-huh or any sort of proof of who this person is it reminds me of abducted in plain sight mm-hmm. when he like enrolled her in that catholic school and said that none of their documents lived through a fire that they had or whatever mm-hmm. and they just yeah um ironically the stainers had actually sent out those posters to all the elementary schools in the state and the admissions that received the poster saw it and then threw it out. So nobody in the actual school that were with the students saw that missing poster with his paper, with his picture on it. Hmm. <sighs> and now it, Parnell, huh? Is, there's just so many things that lined up way too easy in yeah. his favor. Yeah, no, I agree. Everything. Every time I read something, I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Like they did everything right. It just, the wrong thing would happen. Right. Um, so ironically, nope, Parnell (laughs) got a job at the Holiday Inn and also sold Bibles door to door. That also pisses me off. That that grosses me out. I don't like it. Um, he even hired like babysitters for Steven, but he would tell Steven that he would spank him if he told them anything about Merced, um, and what had happened that he had a different family in Merced. Mm -hmm. um so steven just accepted this and accepted him as his new dad like he goes well if my parents don't want me Mm -hmm. i guess this is what life is now and kids are so like moldable yeah it's wild um resilient and you know they just kind of okay whatever Mm -hmm. i guess um february 24th of 1973 the two moved to a shitty trailer this is what i wrote it was just decrepit and gross um, and Steven switched schools again to Kiwana Springs Elementary, and now he actually had records of being at the other elementary, so they didn't necessarily, it was that first one that was the biggest thing, like, mm-hmm. um, to Kiwana Elementary, and he kind of thrived there, like, as soon as he had accepted that this was kind of his life now, he did good in school, he had a lot of friends, his teacher said he was a good kid and you know whatever well behaved um on april 18th 1973 steven turned eight um and after this after this uh there was a night that he snuck out of the trailer and he said he was going to go try to find his real family um he had made a made it a few blocks got confused and scared and went back to the trailer um, Par- Parnell never woke up throughout this, so he had no idea that oh, he had no. attempted it. Um, Steven got the mumps and impetigo. I've had impetigo, it's gross. Uh-huh, and Parnell uh, obviously had to take him to the doctor at that point. The doctor didn't see anything weird. Um, Parnell did all the talking, didn't let Steven say anything. And mm-hmm. Steven, honestly, and he said in later interviews that he never really even thought to say anything to like authority figures whenever he saw them because it was just there was a judge a judge told him that that's where he was living now you know um after parnell rent after this they rented a house in santa rosa 
with a yard for Queenie because Queenie's still there. That's kind of Stephen's like mm-hmm. lifeline. Queenie was like his best friend and um, safe space, uh, which meant that Stephen also moved schools again to Doyle Park Elementary, which he was not excited about because he really liked his Kiwana friends. Yeah. Um, Parnell got comfortable and would let Stephen like go out with him to eat and everything at this point. They started like actually doing stuff as if they were father and son. Mm-hmm. So Parnell quit at the Holiday Inn job when they passed a law saying that he couldn't smoke at the front desk anymore. <laughs> and he began delivering newspapers, which was a huge page pay cut. So they had to move again. Mm-hmm. Um, and, well, and it just helps to keep him from getting too familiar with anybody. Mm-hmm. That and it's like, no one will question it because they're the new people like mm-hmm. it's just okay so they moved into santa rosa's like a bunch of rundown hotels in santa rosa kind of hotel hopped again and Stephen yeah. got back into kiwana elementary though so he was kind of happy about that um and he attended fourth grade there at kiwana Stephen made a friend who he called his best friend named kenny mm-hmm. and when they came back uh they were able to be friends again obviously and not long after this, Parnell started dating Kenny's mother, Barb. Ew. I just can't. I. And Barb seems like a fucking treat, too. Hold on. Um, Parnell started working at the Holiday Inn again. Apparently, he got over the no smoking thing. And uh, the three moved into the North Star Trailer Park. Kenny lived with his father full time, so. Um, it was just Parnell, Barb, and um, Stephen. Stephen says that the couple raped him on <gasps> nine separate occasions during the 18 months that Barb lived with them. Oh, my God. So she was... Um, Participant in it. Yeah, she was definitely not a good person. In December of 1974, Parnell asked Stephen if he would help him take another young boy to add to their family. So they drove to the mall in Santa Rosa, and Parnell made Stephen go approach boys and talk to them, try to get them to the to the car. Um, so he sent him out on his own, and Stephen purposely didn't try to get any boys to come home. He would go in, go talk to the boys, and then come back and say that he had attempted to and they wouldn't come or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but he would never actually ask or try to get any boy to come with them. And they did this for a full two hours that day. I'm guessing Steven was getting too old for Parnell. Yep. He was hitting about to hit puberty. Mm-hmm. And and that's what kind of what Steven was saying. He's like, I think he was losing interest in me in that way. Um, and so he wanted to get some someone new. Um uh, so May of 1975, Parnell also told Barb that she should convince a boy to come home with them. Um, so she walked up to a boy and the boy actually ended up running away. Uh, this pissed Parnell off basically because, okay, you're throwing up red flags now. Like there's a boy that was approached and asked and obviously you weren't like subtle enough about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so they relocated again to avoid detection to Willert, California. Um, Parnell couldn't find work at this place. So only a month went by and they moved to Fort Bragg. Again, they're just like hopping everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, Parnell opened a Bible store with his parents' money. Yeah. 
It's like Bible something and gifts was its name, but it was a flop. Imagine that. Um, At this point, Stephen was 10 years old. So he is getting closer to puberty and had been with Parnell for two years or so now. Uh, Well, two and a half years. Um, He was trusted to pretty much roam free, go to school, walk home from school and stuff because Parnell just, they had gotten into a routine and Steven, again, he's like, I just figured it was normal. Mm -hmm. Uh, So spring of 1976, Barb got custody of her four children because she had four kids with this other guy and the whole lot of them moved into an old converted school bus with bunks. Gross. Yeah. Um, Barb would later say that she didn't know that Dennis, you know, Stephen, um, was taken in the first place, even though she like helped Molested Parnell. him? Yeah. And helped Parnell try to get another little boy. Mm-hmm. I just don't, I don't understand whatever. Um, in June, Barb left Parnell for another man. So in July, Parnell and Steven moved into a mobile home in Conchi, I think is how you say it, um, where Steven got his own room and he helped Parnell garden and raise hob- raise a hobby farm. They joined the school. He joined the school football team and he pretty much read- led a normalish life at this point. Mm-hmm. Like this is when what Steven said is when he felt like he had the most normal life. Yeah. Yeah. Time in his childhood. Um, Steven started smoking weed though, and cigarettes and drinking. Um, and, uh, one of these times, one of the times that he had gotten drunk, he told his girlfriend that he had a real family somewhere else and she didn't really take him seriously. She's and he's like, what, You're 13? Oh, he's like 11. Oh Yeah. Cause he gets, he, it's he the seventies, man. I know. I'm like, he gets found at 14. So he's like 11 oh. and 12 in this while they're at this like trailer. Okay. Just, oh boy. Um, <laughs> July of 1979, the two moved 50 miles south to a ranch in uh, Mendocino County. Um, and in the Manchester County District. Whoa, I just rolled down and then I lost it. Where they were guarding a crop of marijuana. Apparently, that's like, that was Parnell's new job. I don't Mm -hmm. know. Where Parnell also took the marijuana to use, obviously. (laughs) So they were smoking weed every day. (laughs) Um, Stephen, Stephen hated the fact that they were moving because he had found like an actual normal life where they were. Um, It was a downgrade for sure. He didn't get to have his own room because they were living in a one-room trailer. Um, Steven was entering puberty and Parnell was vocal about wanting to find another younger boy to him. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Steven continually sabotaged any of his efforts to try to find a younger boy. And then on February 14th of 1980, Parnell showed up with Timothy White. Oh God. And had picked it when he went to go pick up Steven from school. And instantly Steven said that he was just like, like gut drop. Mm-hmm. Like he did it. He, he got another boy. Well, and the thought was if he got another boy that there's only so much more time for Steven before either Steven's killed off or. Right. Well, and apparently um, one of Steven's teenage acquaintances named Randall Poorman was the one who helped 
get Timothy White, like lure him into the car. Um, because obviously Steven wasn't good at doing that, even mm-hmm. though it was, he's like, it was all on purpose. I didn't want to get yeah. another kid. Cause that sounds, I don't want anybody else to have to deal with what I had to deal with. Right. Um, so Steven took care of this young boy and he promised to take him home that day. He's like, I'll take you home. You will go home. Yeah. He's like, I can't, he could never live with himself if he let this little kid mm-hmm. have to deal with it. So after a couple of attempts, like I said before, um, on the evening of March 1st, Stephen made it, made, made him and Timmy dinner. There we go. And drove or dressed them really warm so that they could walk through the night. Um, Parnell left for his night shift as a security guard at that at that uh, hotel. Mm-hmm. And he said bye to Queenie and promised to come back for her. Um, mm-hmm. And at seven, they left and they hitched a ride with a man who barely spoke any English. Um, but from what Stephen could catch from what he learned of Spanish, they were heading into um, Ukiah. So he's like, so we just rode with them and they let us off in the, on the outskirts of the road or on the outskirts of the town. And at about nine, um, the boys began trying to walk over to Timmy's babysitter's house because that's where Timmy knew to walk, like mm-hmm. how he, where he knew someplace. Um, but nobody was home when they got there. So, um, they tried to remember, well, Timmy tried to remember where his family's house was, but got really confused cause it was dark and he hasn't been there for a while. And he usually just walked to his babysitter's. Um, so Steven used a telephone book at a phone booth to find the police station address. Um, they literally had to walk past the hotel, the palace hotel where Parnell was working. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was, that had to be like scary. Yeah. Um, Steven tried to get Timmy to walk the final bit of the journey himself because Steven planned to go back to Queenie. Mm -hmm. Um, then, uh, when he like sent him off. I guess Timmy got scared yeah, and got nervous and ran back to, cause he was his safe haven for mm-hmm. the whole time, ran back to Steven. And now we're here. This is where yeah. we're at. They got found. So Parnell was arrested at the palace hotel that night. Um, he was brought in for an interview and they had Steven ID him through a window and then, um, him through the window in the interview room and Stephen confirmed that that was who had taken them. Um, the police then brought kind of forced from what I saw or what I read, it was like, they kind of just like shoved Stephen into the room with Parnell. Oh my God. Cause obviously Stephen was not like super gung ho. I want to be right next to him. Mm-hmm. Um, but and asked him if Parnell was the man who took him. And in front of Parnell, Stephen screamed and left the room, like shoved his way out of the room. The next day, they obtained a warrant for searching the cabin. That's what they were calling the trailer they were living Mm -hmm. in. The cabin where they were living and brought Stephen with them so that he could point out things if he knew things. And he got his doggy. Mm-hmm. And at this point, yep, he went and he got Queenie. So at this point, the press had gotten a hint of something going on in the state in the station. Um, they were trying to actively divert the press from going to the trailer with them, obviously, because that could be an issue. 
but they had managed to figure it out. So not long after they got there, the press showed up and media started kind of uh, mm-hmm. swarming. Um, but still, by the time, oh, I already said that. Yep, by the time they got there, they were there. Um, so the cabin was dark and dingy. Inside, they compared it to a dungeon and that there were dirty dishes and clothes scattered throughout the whole living space. They found Timmy's clothes that he was wearing the day of the abduction and his lunchbox full of Valentine's cards. Mm. Um, Steven got Queenie and waited in the cop car. Like, that's what he did. He walked in, he got his dog, and he went and sat in the cop car. I just want my dog. I just want Queenie. Um, There was a press conference that afternoon where Steven answered questions um, with Queenie sitting in his lap about... um, why he decided to bring Timmy home and why he hadn't made his own escape at any point. He's like, I knew that Parnell was going, I knew what Parnell was doing was wrong. I just gave Timmy. So this is a quote and it doesn't quite make sense, but I'm going to say it and then I'm going to say what I think he meant. Um, I knew what Parnell was doing was wrong. I just gave Timmy with his whole life ahead of him with his parents. So I think he's just saying this little kid didn't deserve to be there. He had a whole life to live and, you know, but he obviously, um, I was, I, and I wrote that down and then I said, said the 14 year old, Mm -hmm. he was, I guess from everything he like came back extremely mature, extremely like grown up. He basically, you know, like, and it was kind of, we'll get into that. So Steven even said that, he was originally planning to go back to Parnell's after dropping off Timmy because it was the life he had lived forever. He kind of felt sorry for Parnell because, um, it, well, he said, I kind of feel sorry for him because, and then an officer told him not to make any more statements um, and not answer any further because it's kind of leading into things that could make it easier to get Parnell off in court. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a like the end of his quote when Timmy was interviewed he sat on Stephen's lap oh and he said that Stephen took care of him that he was his friend he'd read him comic books and stuff and uh 7 p.m Stephen got to go home to his family in Merced mm-hmm. um before this the police had told the parents to hey expect a teenager he's very independent he's matured he's not a little boy anymore he's not that seven-year-old that disappeared so keep Mm -hmm. that in mind which is such a hard thing to try to like remember um and they threw a bit of a like welcome home I said welcome home banger but they threw it like a party that had 230 people throughout the night show up and like welcome home and bring things and whatever I overwhelming a little bit. I know. I don't think he needed that, but thank you. Uh-huh. Um, obviously the media swarmed this party too in the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was super emotional. Steven was extremely overwhelmed and couldn't remember his siblings names, um, which made him feel terrible. Uh, this is when his parents gave him his presents from 1972 from Christmas that they kept in their living room since then waiting for him to come home. Um, Dell believes that the key, that it was Kay's faith and prayers that brought Stephen back. Mm-hmm. Um, that that night, Carrie and Stephen slept side by side on the family's living room floor. Um, Carrie said that in later interviews that he had such a hard time sleeping that night that he just kept staying up and listening to Stephen breathe 
and he couldn't believe that he was actually there. Um, he also said that that night he, when he couldn't sleep, he got up to take a walk like he did most nights. He would get up because he couldn't sleep because he couldn't turn his mind off. And mm-hmm. he walked outside and looked up at the stars and once again began to wish for his brother to come home and then remembered he actually was home. And so he just thanked the stars instead that night. Oh, and I'm like, oh. <laughs> um, uh, Kay said that he, that she doesn't like what Parnell did, obviously, but she was grateful that Steven was alive, that he didn't kill him mm-hmm. that, you know, March 4th. So a few days after they appeared, Parnell pleaded guilty, um, to kidnapping, uh, the two and bail was set at $20,000 and he was held waiting trial when all of this, this broke people and coworkers of Parnell were flabbergasted. No one suspected him. Um, he was well liked and was quiet. So they, they had even introduced Steven to them as his son. Like they didn't think really anything of it. Um, I'm not going to get too deep into like what happened with his stuff. I'm just going to say he, um, Parnell was convicted, but got way less time than I think he should have. Um, will get into that next week. Yep. And I'll get into that next week. Um, as for Steven, uh, he had a hard time adjusting as you can imagine to a more structured household. Cause he was kind of just well, self-sufficient. You- he goes from I can smoke and drink and mm-hmm. do whatever I want to a very devout back to a very devout Mormon family. Yeah. So, um, considering he had basically come from Parnell's where he can do whatever he want, like you said, um, he said to Newsweek, I returned as almost a grown man, and yet my parents still treat saw me as a seven year old. After they stopped trying to teach me the fundamentals all over again, it got better but why doesn't my dad hug me anymore? Oh, break my heart. Everything had changed. Sometimes everything had changed. Sometimes I blame myself. I don't know. Sometimes if I should have come home, would it be better off? Um, Steven got counseling for a brief amount of time, but he refused to give details on the sexual abuse. Like I said, mm-hmm. um, and in 2007, Stephen's sister said in an interview that their father didn't think that Stephen needed any counseling because, again, they're coming from this, like, I'm assuming they're very devout, mm-hmm. um, which some don't necessarily believe in counseling. They think counseling is through the Lord and that's it. Um, so they didn't seek any more counseling. She also said that, quote, he got on with his life, but is pretty messed up. Mm-hmm. He was bullied for being molested yep. in, in school, which is absolutely ridiculous. Um, and eventually he dropped out and he became a heavy drinker and got kicked out of the family home because he was becoming a huge issue in the home. Um, and in 1985, Stephen married Jody Edmondson. So he like kind of cleaned himself up at 18, which mm-hmm. is crazy. Um and married Jody Edmondson, who was 17, and they had two children. He also began working with child abduction groups and spoke at schools about personal safety. And he seemed like he was turning everything around. He worked at a pizza place um, in Merced and was beginning to attend church again. Mm -hmm. And on September 16th of 1989, 
Steven was in a motorcycle accident on his way home from work and sustained fatal head injuries. Um, at least 500 people attended his funeral and Timothy White was a pallbearer. Oh. Um, there are lots of sources and details, like for details and more stuff. But if I would have gone more detailed, we would have been here even longer because now we've been recording for like two hours. Yeah. Well, hour and not a half. quite an hour and a half. Don't be dramatic. Mine's so, only like three pages though, because his is the other one's kind of. Well, yeah, it's kind of straightforward. Yeah. But yeah, this was, it was one of those things that it's like, I've always heard the general story, but when I dug into it, I was like, oh my gosh, like. It's just so crazy how they were doing everything. They did everything right and yeah. everything wrong. Everything that could go wrong did. Went wrong. But then at the end, I mean, he came back and it was, mm-hmm. you know, good. But man, I tell you, it was a, it was one of those that gave me kind of nightmares yeah. about things like once I have kids and things like that. Yeah. It's a dark story. <sighs> but yeah, that's it. That's, that's the story of uh, Steven Stainer and I will let you guys know about Parnell next week. Oh, I'm not excited at all for that. Yeah, no, I wouldn't be either. (laughs) All right. Should we crack into mine? Uh, Probably just keep in mind that heartfelt story about looking at the stars and thinking for your brother coming home. (laughs) I'm going to tell you guys about the Yosemite murders. So we're going to start off with the Yosemite murders and we'll get into how this all ties together in a minute, in a hot second. All right. So on the evening of February 15th, 1999, Carol Sund of Eureka, California, along with her 15-year-old daughter, Julie, and her, their family friend, Silvina Peloso from Argentina, were staying at the Cedar Lodge at the end of El Portal, California, which was right near like the mouth of Yosemite. Mm-hmm. Shortly after the women were Shortly after they checked in um, and they began their stay, the women were all reported missing. Wow. So the investigation focused on employees at the Cedar Lodge, as well as suspicious persons in the town of Modesto, where Carolson's wallet was found in the street several days after her disappearance. Remember okay. that. Noted. On March 18, 1999, a man... Um, um, a man found Carol Sun's rental car in a secluded area 100 yards north of the Highway 108 near Long Barn, California. On the following day, March 19th, investigators arrived to open the car trunk where they discovered the badly burned bodies of Carol Sund and Silvina, Silviana Peloso. Okay. Um, there, the bodies were burned beyond recognition and were identified using dental records. A note was sent to police with a hand-drawn map indicating the location of the third victim, uh, Julie Sund. Uh, the top of the note read, we had fun with this one. Oh, I hate that. Investigators went to the location, depicted on the map, and found the remains of Julie whose throat had been cut. So. I, I just, ew, Okay. So they had immediately called in the FBI and launched the largest search ever mounted in Yosemite at any time. Uh, Five months passed without another killing, and the community surrounding Yosemite was kind of lulled into a sense of calm, especially when the FBI announced that those they believed responsible for the murders were in custody, but they had the wrong men. So on July 22nd, 1999, the decapitated body of Joey Armstrong, a 26-year-old Yosemite naturalist, was found near her cabin in Yosemite's Foresta region. 
After her friends reported her missing, police found signs of a struggle at her cabin and half a mile away, uh, they then found her body. Her head, which had been removed, was found several feet away in the water. Eyewitnesses said they saw a blue 1979 International Scout parked outside the cabin where she had been staying. Detectives traced this vehicle to Carrie Stainer. Dun, dun, dun! Which led him to becoming the prime suspect in the case. So, Carrie Stainer actually had left a substantial amount of evidence in and around Armstrong's cottage, but police initially started searching for him because his vehicle had been seen near her place and they thought he would be a natural witness to interview. So, originally, they just thought, We want to saw something. Yeah. Yeah. And then they realized, "Mm, actually, motherfucker might have done it. Let's go ahead and look a little deeper into that. The funny thing is, is authorities had already interviewed him once before about the other three murders, but he was not considered a suspect at that point because he had no criminal history and remained calm during the police interview. So he was an employee at the Cedar Lodge. Okay. FBI agent John Bowles and Jeff Reinick, uh, ew, sorry, Carrie Steiner, um, staying at the Laguna del Sol nudist resort in Wilton, California, where he was arrested and taken to Sacramento for questioning. Was he nude when he was arrested? Uh, God, I hope so. (laughs) Uh, During his interrogation, Carrie Stainer shocked agents when he confessed not only to Armstrong's decapitation, but to the murders of Peloso and Sons and the sending of the map for finding Julie's son's body. His his vehicle yielded evidence proving his link to Armstrong. So I'm guessing there was things in her that was hers okay Uh, after he was brought in for questioning um when he confessed to murdering joey armstrong he described the brutal killing as if he was reading a soup label is what the fbi agent said um then when he confessed to murdering carol son julie son and sylviana peloso um the fbi agents had gone in and said i want i went to ask carrie if he wanted to talk i want and Carrie's response was, I want you to get a hold of some producers in Los Angeles. I want a movie of the week made out of my story. There was a movie made about Steven, and he wanted, and I want the same treatment. <sighs> Bitch! He wanted the whole world to take note. Oh my, there is a difference. Mm-hmm. So, uh... Carrie Stainer, we're going to get into a little bit of the same background. So, he was raised in Merced, California. His younger brother, Stephen, obviously, we just went over this, was kidnapped by Kenneth Parnell. Mm-hmm. Um, and Carrie uh, stated that he uh, felt neglected while his parents grieved over the loss of Stephen. It was almost like their grief consumed him and they forgot they had other kids, is what Carrie said. Which I could see with the way that they described it. So while Stephen was going to school at Mendocino High School, 300 miles south, his older brother, Carrie, was an upperclassman at Merced High School. Um, he was, there was a pall over Carrie because he was the kid who had his brother kidnapped, whose brother was kidnapped. He was mm-hmm. kind of a, uh, they said Carrie always wore a hat because he was wearing a hat because he was compulsively pulling his hair out. Emotionally, Carrie Stainer had a tough time during his childhood. So, like, that was what his classmates said. He was always pulling his hair, probably, like, a nervous or anxious reaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also exhibited some behaviors that made others uncomfortable, including he later admitted to exposing himself to his sister's friends. Uh, 
It seemed as though he had a compulsion with trying to get close to women or be sexual with them, but he was unable to develop any sort of interpersonal relationships with women. Ew. I mean, okay. (laughs) So then when a psychologist reviewed both of these cases, they said the contrast between the two brothers is surreal. You have one brother who has been subject to unspeakable horrors for years, but by all appearances, he's a happy-go-lucky, jovial kid with a girlfriend. You have the other brother who's left at home, had no interest in girls, had no interest in people, and it wasn't that he was just a loner. He was a bit of a creepy loner. (laughs) All right. Uh, When Stephen escaped from Parnell and returned home in 1980, obviously he received massive media attention. Like you said, there was a true crime book, a TV movie, both titled Mm -hmm. I Know My First Name is Stephen, were made out of the ordeal. Stephen died in a motorcycle accident in 1989, which we already went over. But then the following year, Stainer's uncle Jesse, uncle Jesse, uh, with whom he was living at. So Carrie Stainer was living with Jesse at the time. Okay. And it was like his person. Like he was his Mm, like confidant confidant. It was, he was closer to that him than he was his parents. Like it was kind of the person holding Carrie Stainer together. Okay. Um, Stainer later claimed that his uncle molested him during the same period when Steven was kidnapped whether that's true or it's Carrie trying to get the same attention as his brother, they are not yeah, really, some sort of sympathy. Yeah. They don't really, not really any sort no. of evidence for it. Right. Uh, however, Carrie Stainer is, it is reported to have attempted suicide in 1999 or 1991 mm-hmm. uh, and was arrested in 1997 for, for possession of marijuana, methamphetamine and methamphetamine. Although those charges were eventually dropped. So, um, in 97, he was hired as a handyman at the Cedar Lodge Motel in El Porto, California, just outside where, where Carol's son was staying. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stainer, Carrie Stainer had been at the lodge for two years when Carol's son and her teenage daughter and her friend came to stay in February. Uh, that night, he, talk, he stated he talked his way into their room under the guise of fixing a leak, then sexually assaulted both teenage girls and brutally murdered all three. So, in my mind... It would make sense that he maybe was sexually abused because of his, even as like a teenager and whatnot, he had this like, he was like over-sexual as they said. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I guess in my mind, it could have been not caused, but like a trigger of the sexual abuse. Yeah. Um, The trigger though, I think for the killing was the death of his brother and the death of his uncle because they happened relatively close to each other and then relatively after that is when he started killing yeah because it was 89 is when steven died his uncle died when 91 no next year 90 no it was sorry hold on yeah it was 90 yep and then it was what 97 97 is when he hired at cedar lodge and 99 is when they he murdered so, I mean, it's a little bit further, longer than normally, but it's still, it's two major life events that happened relatively quickly mm-hmm. that probably affected his psyche. Uh, so, and the drugs. Also, yeah. <laughs> and the meth. The meth probably had effect in it too. Uh, he dropped Carol's wallet on the street deliberately to mislead the, mislead the police and sent the note on where to find Julie's body. Okay. Interesting. Uh, then when Joey saw, or when Stainer saw Joey Armstrong, uh, 
he said something instantly changed within him and he decided it was time to kill again. You Okay. Yeah. So he claimed after his arrest that he had fantasized about murdering women since he was seven years old, long before the abduction of his brother. Uh, he pled not guilty by reason of insanity. His lawyers claimed that Stainer's family had a history of sexual abuse and mental illness manifesting itself not only in the murders, but also his obsessive compulsive disorder and his request to be provided with child pornography in return for his confession. No, dude. <laughs> not how this works. Oh my God. Okay. So Dr. Jose Arturo Silva tested that uh, Stainer had obsessive compulsive disorder, mild autism, and paraphilia. He was ne- nevertheless found sane, convicted of four counts of first-degree murder uh, by jury on J- August 27th, 2002. Uh, in 2002, during the penalty phase of his trial, Carrie Stainer was sentenced to death and thereafter entered housing in the Adjustment Center on death row at San Quentin Penitentiary in California. However, Stainer remains on death row as of September 2019, though there have been no executions in California since, 2000, since a 2006 court ruling finding flaws in the administration of capital punishment in the state. But anyway, that is the tale of two brothers. That's, hey, it's so weird how much I had to, like, work around the story of yeah. Carrie because I, like, would read a whole article and then they'd go into, like, this chunk about Carrie and be like oh yeah because Carrie said when he was seven or whatever he started da 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 and it's like okay so move past this Mm because I didn't want to know I didn't want to know the details on it until you told me that's gross decapitation that Mm -hmm. freaks me out it takes a lot it's just you can't like accidentally decapitate somebody it's like when you you know when you decide you're gonna break a pipe cleaner Mm-hmm. and you have to like twist and bend and bend and bend and bend it's like that you really have to commit you really have to, there's a lot of muscle a lot of tissue a lot of bone Spine. that you gotta chop in half to cut off a head mm. grosses me out any sort of like dismemberment kind of grosses me out because i can't imagine ever 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 doing that no Ugh. But yeah, good it job. reminds me of my grandma talking about how she used to they used to have chickens in their backyard and whenever they wanted chicken for dinner she'd have to go out and wring their neck and mm-hmm. how they you grab them by the head and you swing yep, them around they, <laughs> you'd like whip them until their neck snaps i'm like that's fucked up that's totally fucked up grandma why are we talking about that over a fucking rotisserie chicken we got from ivy <laughs> i totally watched my mom do that when we had chickens when i was little over at the other farm she we she'd go out well she had to do it because so our old dog goldie got into the chickens and like they were kind of dead but not all the way dead so she she had to like just yeah so she had to just do the whip to like actually break their neck so they weren't suffering Mm -hmm. um but i remember that that was that was a scarring day well like just from one to the next like there was like seven chickens that just needed to be actually just and they do run around with their heads cut off by the way because my mom got chased by one (laughs) oh yeah no i know we definitely um after like when we actually went to slaughter the chickens um that same summer we did it (laughs) sounds gross we did it at a picnic table jesus christ amanda (laughs) we didn't have anything else to do it on we we weren't like an actual farm we were just a hobby farm we just had like 
a handful of chickens. So did it on the chicken table and they'd run off the chicken table <laughs> or uh, the, the, the picnic table. Yeah. You from what I can remember, because let's be honest, this is just maybe I've dreamt part of it. I don't know. I don't remember my childhood much. But when you do, some of the stories you're telling me. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I love you. Um, but that I think I feel like our episode's long enough now, huh? Yeah. We should probably close it up. <laughs> we, should, we should probably shut that shit down. All right, guys, thanks for listening um, to our brotherly episode. <laughs> the episode of brotherly love. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, uh, like, subscribe, review, rate, all those things on all the things. Do all the things with the stuff on the on the, on the stuff on the thing. Uh, you know, the show, the social meds, um, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, what is the other one? Twitter. Twitter. Oh, yeah. Um, I she still did. She still re-downloaded the app, but she has yet to log in. So. Correct. <laughs> um, yes. And email us. I love I love the emails. Mm-hmm. That was so nice when Ashley emailed us. It was, it was a good time. That's so nice. Uh, but yeah, so do all the things and uh, spread the word. Spread yourself, motherfucker. Oi, shh. It's son. That was weird. I oh. wasn't planning that. That was high as hell. Yeah. It sounds like something's happening outside. It sounds like there's a helicopter. It's weird. Somebody getting dropped off at your house? Did you order <laughs> your helicopter to come earlier than you had planned? Is Donald Trump visiting your house? I was going to say, am I getting... Is, does the persecution start now? <laughs> <laughs> The purge. <laughs> the purge is starting. <laughs> uh all right. All right. Adios, friends. Bye. Bye.